Green tea. This is yummy. Let me, um, we're going to be in, we're going to be, like this, this is our, what is our launching verse for this, this uh, sermon today. Second Chronicles 641 says, and this is where uh, Solomon is de- dedicating the temple that he's built for the Lord and he's putting the ark in the, in the temple. So it says, now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Mm. May your priest, Lord God, be filled with salvation. Amen. Gosh. Doesn't the church need that right now? I just spent, uh, my mom cooked her brains out, right, like all week long for this neighborhood party. And I sat with some people at that party. And I, by the way, I handed out probably 50 of these things this week to all the business association members, went to a big meeting, handed it to them, said, I want church. And unashamedly, I just said, you know, I, I want you guys to come. And then at my party, with my mom's party that she had, and, and but I sat with people and I talked to them about like their view on God and the church. And it was, they were very honest with me. They, I think we've grown to have a good relationship where they can be honest with me. And they've come from some backgrounds that they really hate. So it's just, they hate church. They hate this whole image and all this kind of stuff. And so we just had this wonderful conversation. So I said, well, you know, by the way, I would love to have you come <laughs> and hear a different message, you know. But, but just listen to these words. May your priest, Lord God, be, be clothed with salvation, Right? Because many of our priests are not, or pastors or whatever, clothed with different garb, right? You know, maybe. Um, May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Your goodness. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come right now and fill this room. Absolutely take over this room this property, this place in this moment. We don't ask that you would hear Jason, that people would hear Jason. We ask that we would hear you. And me, myself included, as I preach, I pray that I would hear you. That all of what you are, who you are, as God of your people, as God of this world, would pour out this morning. That every single person in this room would walk away this morning with a joyous conviction and a change and a spring in their step about who you are. Push away anything, Lord Jesus, that in this room, spiritual, otherwise, thoughts, everything, just push it away. Give us the freedom just for the next 20, 30 minutes to hear your voice without any distraction whatsoever. So we pray the blood of Christ over this room, the protection and the discernment and the wisdom and the joy of Christ over this room right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So God is good, right? That's what that verse says, that God is good. The Lord is good. Easy to say, (laughs) right? God's goodness is one of the foundational or the, the, you know, the principal revelations of the Old Testament scriptures found with Moses, found in the Psalms, found in all of the prophets. It's just all over the place. And God's goodness is foundational to what it means to be the people of God. If God were not good in nature, we would be a very different people with a very different message, very different values and very different pursuits. If God were not good in nature, control and fear and coercion would be our tools of change which would govern our interactions instead of grace and mercy and forgiveness and things like that. 
We know that people don't really respond to fear and coercion. They just hunker down and wait for a chance to lash out. All that stuff doesn't really change anything. Humankind still reflects some remnant of God's image within us, right? If you look at, uh, at humankind, we can still see some reflection of God, although it's now broken and polluted with sin. That is the Christian message. We know that. Humankind cannot now fully reflect God's goodness in its current state. We need outside intervention. We need restoration. We need cleansing. You know, uh, Martin Luther said it was like being a caterpillar in a ring of fire that whichever way you go, you're burned up by your sin. We need rescue from above, from something else. Something has to do it for us. You know, in the first few chapters of Genesis, it describes how humankind was made in the image of God, our creator. But we chose to turn our backs on him. We chose to sin in the Garden of Eden, which shattered that image. So now we are in need of need of repair, and you can think of it as a broken mirror, as of looking in a broken mirror, right? We can still see remnants of God in our visage, but we need a new mirror. And that's what Christ does for us. It's what he gives us. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what a wonderful verse. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen, right? (laughs) In Christ, our image is restored. Like a kitten seeing, like, I love that picture, right? Like a kitten seeing a lion when he looks in the mirror. That's what you feel like when you look into Jesus, right? And now when God the Father looks on you, he sees the perfect record of God the Son, Jesus, on you. So our lives are now lived in this process of spiritual formation to address this, this residual effects of sin in the world and in us and all that kind of stuff. We are being changed. Therefore, filled with God's Spirit and presented with His character, which we're to emulate, we seek to reflect His grace and His mercy and His goodness and His servanthood and His forgiveness with others. And we seek to live out of what we truly are, and that is children of God. We are image bearers of the King. And without His goodness within us, And to emulate, we would attack only behavior living by a set of regimented rules. Nobody likes that. Instead, the people of God address the heart, don't we? Or we should. We address the heart, seeking true spiritual formation of the soul into Christ's likeness, becoming more and more like Christ in his character, bringing about persons reflective of God's goodness and how we treat each other and how we treat people in the world and all that kind of stuff, empowered to do so by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and learning all along the way. We're never perfect. We're always learning, right? We're being changed. Now, before the retreats, the men's and women's retreats, we were speaking largely of uh, pursuing God's glory and God's mission in the world with Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission being our signature verses there, uh, bringing other people into the glorious nature of God's goodness, which makes our purpose a divine and welcomed and wonderful task. So we reflect the message of a loving and compassionate God, one offering abundant life to the world. What everybody really wants, but they don't get it, right? They don't understand. 
And two weeks ago, in the last sermon on that, you ladies missed it because you were all trotting off at the women's retreat. Sorry for you. You should go listen to it. It was a good one. You know, but we talked about Jonah in that sermon, and then we talked in our community groups about it as well. And, And if you remember, Jonah was acting outside of God's goodness, right? Up to a point, he refused to represent God's true nature to the Assyrians due to his hatred for the Assyrians, right? He just despised them. They were Israel's enemy at the time. And even when he finally succumbed to his calling, he did so very reluctantly, And he went and preached to the Syrians. And Jonah was aware that if they knew of God's goodness, they would probably embrace him. And to his chagrin, they did. (laughs) Right? And the Assyrians, you know, there's nothing like your enemy getting grace. That's like, oh, why didn't you just take them out? Why didn't you just squish them? But Jonah didn't know. if, if, If God squished the Assyrians, he'd have to squish Jonah too. He's just as bad. Right? But the Assyrians repented in light of God's goodness, and he was mad at God for having compassion on them, right? He said, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew it. Right? I'm so mad at that. (laughs) Slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, why would that make you mad? But he, he got mad. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Stop right there, because many of us do not have that view of the Old Testament God, do we? Let's be honest, right? Ours is one of a God who punishes and who relishes bringing calamity on people, uh, on people in the Old Testament. That's, way, that's the way we view the God of the Old Testament, as if there's two different gods represented in the Old and New Testament, right? But not Jonah, not Jonah, Right? who, if you recall, didn't have any of the New Testament scriptures, all the fuzzy Jesus stuff, and he also didn't have much of the Old Testament to go on either. But this was his view of God. It was one of goodness and grace and compassion, a God slow to anger and abounding in love. So you got to ask yourself the question, where did Jonah get this image? Well, I would say that he got it Uh, through what he had of the Old Testament, either in writing or in oral tradition, whatever he had, um, which communicated God as opposite of what we hear him to be in our culture today. So the question obviously is, where did we get our picture of this Old Testament angry God? Right? Where did we get that? And I don't think it's from the scriptures. I think it's from our culture. I really do from those who have read very little or not at all of the Old Testament, who don't acknowledge the power and the weight and the evilness of sin in the world, those who have not taken care to immerse themselves in God's story with a trusting, open heart, you know, beginning with that, or who've come to to it with preconceived notions, seeking only to find evidence to back up their own wrong attitudes and their own narrative, operating on assumption and drawing wrong conclusions. It comes from that reluctant part of us which has not yet fully submitted to the goodness of God or, or embraced that concept. We don't begin with that view that he is good, which would make sense of all the hard stuff that we read. We don't fully understand that living by God's holiness, his standards of holiness, is what's best for all of mankind. Everybody. 
Holiness, which sometimes must come against, uh, must come into conflict with, with evil that is perpetuated by people in the world. It must. What is that sound? Do you hear that? Yeah, that's kind of... Anyway, that's what, my mind gets distracted, sorry. But there's an old joke that says, uh, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and ever since the fall, we've been trying to return the favor, right? We've been trying to return the compliment, making God in our image. That wrong, angry view of God is humankind's attempt at, you know, creating God in our image, not, not really reflective of his. God's goodness you remember, God's goodness expressed through Israel was surrounded by an environment of very different views of God all around it. Gods that were made in our own image, like the Canaanite god Baal, the supreme deity of many, many gods, who was the male deity of land and fertility, his, land, his title meant landowner, or Ashtoreth, Right? also known as Venus in Rome or Aphrodite in Greece. And you might remember the Greek Olympics where she rose up out of the center stage. Just a, so, a total a- act of worship uh, you know, in, that, in that arena. She was also known as, as Ishtar in Babylonia. And uh, she was the goddess of fertility and war. She was one to be reckoned with, right? She was imaged by Asherah poles, which were these big phallic symbols that decorated the high places. Very sexual in nature. And what the Canaanites believed at that time was that if these deities would see them in lascivious acts, including orgies and incest and adultery and homosexual acts, they'd be aroused and then they would bring forth rain and make the land fruitful. And within that religious structure, therefore, you needed something. You, you, you had this temple priesthood with good-looking young folks, mo- most likely, that were recruited and placed into sexual servitude. And, and as your spiritual act of worship, you'd go to the temple and you would perform sexual acts like orgies and incest and homosexual acts and adultery as your spiritual form of worship. Now, as a result of that, they had a problem with paternity and unwanted pregnancies, babies where you didn't know who the father was, and moms who couldn't afford to keep them. So they conveniently had a third god named Molech, the god of fire who demanded child sacrifice. Just chuck them in the fire, get rid of them, right? The obvious solution to the unwanted byproduct of the worship of the other two deities, the ancient equivalent of abortion. So... If God had anything hard to say or do in the Old Testament, it was in answer to such evil practices. Which is very much, if you think about it, still a very loving, compassionate thing to come in aid of people living under such bondage, even if they were the ones perpetuating that bondage. One of the quotes that TJ, our speaker for the men's retreat, used in our in the retreat was from Alastair Begg. Isn't that a great name? He's Irish or Scottish? Yeah, Scottish. You know, whatever. But um, he, he said this. He said, God requiring our obedience is in itself an act of grace. I want to say that twice because it's worth it. God requiring our obedience is in itself an act of grace because he knows that the path he puts before us will result in the best for our lives. And God's path was in stark contrast to the path of all the other gods worshipped around Israel, then, 
and even now. Right? Now, Jonah could have been, you know, quoting many various passages in the Old Testament, such as uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where, where Moses had an encounter with God, and God passes in front of him saying, uh, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation, because sin is that weighty. And this concept of a good God, forgiving and patient and all that stuff, is all over Scripture in Psalms and Numbers and Exodus, all over the Old Testament, all over the place. And that, by the way, is the God that I want to worship. I really do. A compassionate, gracious, slow to anger God, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, because I got a lot of that in me. (laughs) But... Also, a God who is just, a God who doesn't just let evil go unpunished, whose holy standards he upholds for the good of everybody, because God requiring our obedience is an act of grace, knowing that the path he puts before us will result in the best for everybody. A God of justice and holiness and love. That's a God to worship, right? That's a God to worship. As Moses did in verse 80, when he, when he uh, heard those words of truth proclaimed over him, it says Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. He just couldn't help himself. Same God that David worshiped, Psalm 107.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. So all these Old Testament people <laughs> seeing God in a very different light than what is touted so confidently. But the spiritually illiterate and inexperienced masses who surround us today. I'm 52 years old. I've been preaching the gospel since I was 21 years old. I still have a lot of room for growth. And I think it's so funny to hear somebody that's never read the scriptures say, well, I know what the church is all about. I know what the Bible's all about. That God, he's a, you don't know Jack. You don't know Jack, dude. Come on. Let's be honest, right? You don't. God is good. Slow to anger, patient, wanting people to repent. Why? That's what he wants. But he will arrest and deal with evil as is needed due to the fact that it is destructive to his creative order and everything that he loves so dearly. His justice or his justness and his holiness are a part of his goodness. His justice and his holiness are a part of his goodness. He's not capricious. He's very clear. He's very consistent. He's not a vindictive old curmudgeon, right? He's thoroughly good, and he has broadcast his goodness all across the universe. Are we listening, right? A stark contrast to the petulant, angry, controlling gods to be feared in the surrounding cultures of Israel and even ourselves today. He speaks into being, creation. He fills it with beauty and drawing order out of chaos. He pursues people in an effort to reconcile them all to himself. He's going to major lengths to do that across the world. So the lesson is, don't believe the culture hype. Don't believe the culture hype. Get into the revealed word of God, beginning with the conviction that God is good. Believe it. 
Explore the nature of God from the very source. Align yourself with this true image of a good, good, good God. And what you'll find is, I think, that God isn't only good, he is free and boundless. He is free and boundless, with no master, no challenger, no equal. God's goodness, goodness is not only free, but he is freedom. He is freedom. It's popular today to say that you can't criticize someone else's behavior or their decisions. You know, I feel like you're judging me, man. <laughs> Don't judge me. Well, come on, right? It's the rallying cry of Americans right now. Don't judge me. You can't judge me, right? Even when you are talking to somebody and about another person, they're like, oh, you can't judge them. Well, God, come on now. Anyone with a grasp of reality knows that that is just simply not true. I'm not talking about judging your heart, but I am talking about judging behavior or decisions, right? It's not true, and it's not sustainable in a society. Parents with any experience, right? Parents scoff at such crazy declarations because we know that there are choices and behaviors that are very destructive and hurtful to our children. Don't stick your finger in the... Whatever, the electrical socket, you know? What we find, like, just being able to do whatever you want is not freedom. Anarchy is not freedom. Anarchy is slavery. Anarchy is slavery. Freedom comes in submission to what is truly good, and that is God himself, freedom personified. God requiring our obedience is an act of grace in itself, knowing the path he puts before us will result in what's best for all. So we align ourselves with this true image of a good God. God's free and boundless uh, goodness is everywhere in the world. We can see it everywhere. All over the world, the goodness of God is on display. I just want to take a look at some of these pictures of that Kim and I took on the John Muir Trail. A couple years back, we hiked that trail. It was just beautiful, right? Kim and I are going hiking in Glacier National Park this summer, and I looked up a video this week of some, somebody hiking that, and this girl, like, was rounding the corner, and she comes into this big, majestic view, and she just bursts into tears. I mean, how can you not? How can you not be moved by the majestic nature of God's creation? Ivory Bishop, many of you know him. He moved back to New York. He was born and raised in New York City. He said that when he first went out into the wilderness, when he first went out and encountered creation outside of the city, he said it just looked too fake. It just looked so beautiful, right? The big city boy felt very small. Right now, the goodness of God is at work all over the place. His goodness is giving and sustaining life all around us. It's the goodness of God which presents itself to us as everything beautiful in the world. So get away from your screens. Turn off the news. Gosh, Go bird watching. Watch the squirrel in your backyard, right? Take a hike or notice an act of kindness that somebody's committed in the world or even better yet, go commit one yourself. And see what it does. T.J. TJ, uh, also quoted Elizabeth Brown, Barrett Browning, who wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven. She's referring to Moses and the burning bush in this. I love it. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. <laughs> the rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. What a boring life, right? 
TJ explained how he heard the voice of God when he was, you know, audibly, he heard the word water in a, in a room by himself when he was praying for direction of what God would want him to do with his life. And then he was flooded with this idea to start a beverage company, Humankind, which we have in the back, which provides drinking water through, throughout the world for people that don't have it, right? God's goodness in action from a person listening to the Holy Spirit and being obedient to it. Vinny, walking through the Stations of the Cross on the men's retreat and writing songs about the suffering of Jesus for us. Residual representations of the goodness of God, just regurgitating it to the world. So what's God saying to you? How is he speaking to you? What's he calling you to do? Is he calling you to honor him in, an, in obedience in some way that might seem difficult for you or you might not even fully agree with, but at the end it's good for you and everybody else around you? Have you given away these cards? Have you mailed these to friends? Have you handed them to somebody and said, come and hear about Jesus at Easter? We printed a bunch there in the back. Have you expressed God's goodness to anyone lately? Have you told anybody of how Jesus has made life better for you and also made you better for life? Wouldn't it be nice to share Jesus' abundant life with other people? Don't they need to hear that right now? Or are we Jonah? Well, they're a Republican. They're a Democrat. They don't deserve it. They deserve punishment. Choose to wake up to the goodness of God. Choose to wake up to the goodness of God. If we, can, if we can wake up to the large and small tokens of God's goodness in the world, we'll notice where he is and what he's doing, and we can then engage with it. Instead of focusing on the false narrative of an ancient angry curmudgeon or the modern narrative of vitriol and violence so quickly just spouted all over the place in the news, we begin to see, if we can focus on goodness, uh, the goodness of God, we can begin to see where God is saving and restoring and protecting people, sometimes even from themselves. God is sort of scattering his goodness like breadcrumbs all across the world, and we can follow them back to himself. And in doing so, we begin to see the reasons behind Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and making disciples of all nations, calling them back into the obedience of faith because God requiring our obedience is an act of grace, knowing the path he puts before us will result in the best for everybody. We did a sponge activity at the men's retreat um, where we, everybody was given this dry sponge and they had to go soak it in water, and they had to get it all soaked up. And then, you know, we wrung it out, and then we soaked it up again and wrung it out again and soaked it up again and wrung it out again, right? It's the image of Christians soaking up the goodness of God, soaking up the gospel, soaking up Jesus, and then allowing God to wring it out of us into the lives of other people. And that process is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It is, it is the repetitive process of being a blessing to the world through the message of Christ and the life of Christ. Now, you've seen bumper stickers which say resist. 
which, you know, are maybe identified with certain groups, but they, to me, they seem to be reflective of the sentiment of everybody out there, right? Resist somebody, resist some ideology that's on the opposition of you that you disagree with or that you hate, right? Just resist, defy, be mad, get angry, fight, conquer. (laughs) And what we don't admit is that when we resist somebody else, we exert control over them by using some form of coercion or fear or domination which isn't reflective of the people of God or the image of God. God's goodness is an invitation to wake up, to surrender ourselves to that which is in nature truly, truly, truly good. His goodness is permission to live from a very different narrative, to love your enemy, to call people back into that which requires our obedience to true goodness, to godness. That obedience which is truly an act of grace leading to salvation and a standard of life which honors God and really does truly bring peace and freedom to everybody around us. So to apply this today, change how you view life. Change how you're seeing things. Don't look at a the world with a crooked eye or God with a crooked eye. Avoid the temptation to live from a false narrative, the loud, cacophonous voice that surrounds us all. Believe that God is good and believe that God is working. Believe it. TJ led us through an activity where we blindfolded Mike Thomas. That was fun. Mike had to listen to TJ's quiet voice from across the room as, as the rest of us just got to yell at Mike and distract him. That was the best part of the activity because we all know that everybody wants to yell at Mike Thomas, right? <laughs> Said his wife. <laughs> but Mike had to train his ear to listen to that voice, to listen to TJ's voice above everything else, that quiet voice from across the room that is representative of God's voice through that labyrinth. Learn that. Learn that, right? Listen to God. Give time to him. Let, listen to God via his word. Listen to God via his spirit. Actually pray and seek direction in your life. Listen to God via the church because iron sharpens iron. We help each other to walk well. Look for God's goodness. Immerse yourself in his story, right? Ask the Holy Spirit to make sense of the life around you. Ask him, what's your role right where you are, you know, to bring about his goodness, to bring about his freedom in, in the lives of others, to seek first his glory and, his, and to live out of his purpose, his mission in this world. That was enough, right? Let me pray. I'm going to pray this, the words of uh, the song, All Things Rise. Why don't you close your eyes with me? God, how beautiful is your holy word, which formed the worlds into such goodness. The shame that we would all spurn it all and turn and fall into darkness. We'll sing how through your son you turn this loss and hurt into glory. How when scorned in death you raised him up and his gains become the whole world's story. Let all things rise and bless your name. All things be made right and new again. Lord, your goodness is free and boundless, reaching endless through it all. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for who you are 
what you are and how you have provided to call us back into reflecting that good nature to the world around us. We pray that you would challenge us in great and powerful ways over the coming weeks in doing that.